over at the minimalists, if you can say it, minimalists.com, here's a post about killing my home internet is the most productive thing I've ever done. Earlier this year, I made the conscious decision to remove all internet service from my home. It ended up being the best productivity decision I've ever made. I was not content with the time I was wasting. I felt I could do more purposeful things with my time than spend it on the internet. This doesn't mean I think the internet is evil, bad, or wrong. It's not. The internet is an amazing tool, one that changed my life for the better. But you run a popular website. How could you possibly go with internet service without internet service at home, you might ask? My answer is easy. I plan my internet use. I don't do so in a regimented way. It's not like I say, okay, I'll be on Twitter from 2 to 4 next Thursday. If I see something I want to research on the internet, I write it down and use that list when I have internet access. So I thought that was a really interesting approach. I know I've certainly had times where, you know, even if I am being productive, I'm like, it's, it's very easy to get distracted. You're on the Linux subreddit or Hacker News or a million other places or you put on a JB show. Um, does anyone else have like productivity tips? Does anyone else do this? It kind of reminds me of Stallman's practice of, you know, getting online, syncing all this stuff, writing offline replies, and then syncing back up with the internet. I don't think it's something I would want to do in my day-to-day life, but it does it does make me think about how I think about my internet access and how I plan my time. This is Linux Unplugged, episode 192 for April 11th, 2017. Welcome to Linux Unplugged, your weekly Linux talk show that's kidnapped the host of Ask Noah, and we're forcing him to answer all our toughest Linux questions. My name is Wes. My name is Noah. Hey, welcome to the show, Noah. Thank you for joining us this week. Very much appreciated. How are you doing? Happy, happy, happy to be kidnapped. Excellent. Well, we've got an excellent show today, jam-packed. Starting out, we've got some new projects we're going to highlight, some updates on all of our favorite open source projects. And then, with the end of the Linux Action Show coming up, I thought it might be fun, you know, Linux Unplugged started out as a follow-up show to Linux Action Show, kind of as a way for the community to engage with the topics. Since then, we've kind of gone our own way, diverged a bit, we frequently talk about different topics. Um, But, since the Linux Action Show is going away, I thought it might be fun this time, and since that last Linux Action Show, boy, howdy, that that was a powerful show. Uh, I thought it'd be fun maybe if we returned in spirit to the origins of Linux Unplugged. So, if people have questions for Noah and they want to talk a little bit about the Dell stuff, or know if there's anything that you wanted to talk about that you didn't get time to talk about on the show, we can do that. And, of course, we need to talk about the big news, the news everyone's talking about. That's right. Ubuntu dropping Mirror, going to GNOME. So, I think to do that, we really need the people that make this show what it is, our mumble room. Time-appropriate greetings, Mumble Room. Greetings, programmers. How's everyone doing today? Spiffy. Excellent. Excellent. Okay, so starting out today... I thought we'd talk about something we've talked about a little bit before. Uh, we, we've definitely covered it, and it's the Pinebook. I just thought I saw this update here that says the Pinebook Linux laptop is ready to ship for eighty nine dollars and up, plus shipping, of course. Uh, so we've talked about it a little bit before, um, but not with our friend Noah. So the Pinebook is a cheap, low power laptop with an ARM based processor. First unveiled in November, the Pinebook comes from the makers of the Pine A sixty four single board computer and is used the same processor as that tiny desktop. 
Now the company is getting ready to begin shipping laptops to customers. Prices start at just $89 for a model with an 11.6-inch display or $99 for a 14-inch version. But shipping from Hong Kong can add as much as $37 to the price, depending on where you live. It's uh, available through a build-to-order system, so you enter your email address and choose a screen size and then wait for the sales team to contact you. Uh, it's got a 64-bit all-winner A64 ARM Cortex A53 quad-core processor, 2 gigabytes of RAM, 16 gigabytes of eMMC storage, DGN Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, some USB 2.0 parts, a, mi- a micro SD card slot, headphone jack, and a mini HDMI port. Is this something that you might be interested in there, Mr. Noah? Very much so, for a number of reasons. The first is, I think that it's important to acknowledge that we now live in a world where the laptop is predominant, right? You know, in the past, people would build their desktops. People had powerful workstations. These days, if you go to the Googles, if you go to the Amazon, certainly during my time at Dell, there are not a lot of people working on desktops. And the people that do work on quote-unquote desktops, if you look at them carefully, they're not desktops. They're desktop screens, desktop keyboards, and mice connected to docking stations. They're actually working on laptops. So I think that's the first thing to point out, that the the world is transitioning towards a world of laptops. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And then I'd add to that that I think that the ARM platform is particularly compelling for those of us that like Linux because really we dominate that space. You know, Windows is not <laughs> is not is not uh, competitive on the ARM platform to say the least. Mac OS is not competitive on the ARM platform to say the least, uh, at least as a desktop you know platform goes. So I think that the more competition we have in the processor architecture space, the better chance we have for Linux to take off as a desktop platform. Yeah, I think that's definitely definitely a good point. It's somewhere where we maybe even have a little bit of an advantage, uh, you know, especially from the open source side of things. It's really easy to get things to work. Sure, there's some differences, but if you have access to the source code, source code it's really easy to start pointing those things to different architectures. What about you guys, Mumble Room? Anyone interested in something like this? Um, well, I would be. I don't like the fact that it's all winter, but other than that, um, it's interesting as far as like the price goes. They don't, I don't think they. Sh- I don't think it even ships with an operating system, does it? You know, that's a good question. I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm kind of wondering if they're pushing Android for this, just because that's what they were pushing for the Plan 64 in the first place. Okay, oh, it. yeah. It uh, generically says Linux or optional Android. <laughs> yeah, I feel like it really means Android because the upstream mainline Linux support is pretty terrible on the Pine 64 still. Really? Well, it says, uh, it says yeah, default, it's really so. unfortunate. I actually have a bunch of Pine 64s, and I'm a little disappointed with how poorly supported that CPU is. Or the SOC, that is. That kind of oh, it's a GPU. Oh, well, the GPU is non-existent in open source. You have to run, I think, their kernel and their U-boot. And that's, that's always a problem with these AMD boards. The it's GPUs. not AMD, it's all winner. It's all winner. Uh, sorry, um, yeah, ARM, I think. The problem is that the GPU often is not well supported only for Android, but not Ooh. for the Linux kernel. Well, but you do have the standouts like the Raspberry Pi where everything is open now. And so well, that is you, one of the advantages of using something like a Raspberry Pi over a Pine 64. But you remember the first versions of the Raspberry Pi, do, how I bad do. the GPU was oh, supported. Yeah. Uh, uh, am I... What was that? Are, are you talking to me? Right, hold on. I think Noah got dropped out of the on-air room. Oh, no. We've got production problems. All right, that's fine. Noah, you'll get dragged back. There we go. 
Um, okay. Well, yeah. No, I think I, uh, I think they I think they don't know that I'm me. I think that's the problem. I think what yeah. happened was because I didn't because I just uh, I just basically smashed my face into the keyboard when I was coming up with my name, and then additionally because I'm connected to you via Skype, I'm not connected to you via the mumble room. They don't uh, <laughs> they don't know. I don't. I think I've confused the mumble admins. <laughs> that's what make this show very special. Exactly. Okay. Well, following up, then we are on to our next story. Open Elec 8.0 Linux OS officially out with Raspberry Pi Zero support and Kodi 17.1. It's based on the latest Kodi 17.1 Krypton open source and cross-platform media center software. Open Elec 8 is here with a lot of updated internals as well as support for new platforms such as the recently launched Raspberry Pi Zero W single board computer, the WeTech Hub, and the WeTech Play 2. I'm not familiar with those two, but... They say, WeTech Play 2 brings endless entertainment to your living room. Enjoy the latest movies and series in 4K UHD. Um, so it sounds like they've got some new devices. Other new stuff includes a Linux 4.9 kernel, uh, numerous updated components along with you know new XORG, SystemD. So they've bumped provisions on a lot of the system software, including FFmpeg, which I imagine will be at least somewhat important. Plus, there's uh, no longer going to support iSCSI along with NFS. Um, and they also no longer support HFS or HFS plus file systems. Hey, I can understand that as well. Lurk, Linux infrared remote control support, got removed from OpenELEC 8 as well. So if you guys are using that, watch out. That's a big change. Um, they say it was mostly used only for older IR hardware. So hopefully that doesn't bite anyone. I've tried OpenELEC a little bit myself. Uh, I liked it. It was it was fun. Um, it was neat. It was easy to set up. But for my needs. I, at least on the device that I was using, it was a little bit easier for me to just install Kodi on top of an existing platform where I had a little more control and a little more familiarity. But I could see this being a huge win for people who just, you know, they're not super experienced with Linux or they just want to get up and going, have this going, and then just have it work in a consistent way. Um, what do you use? You're, you're talking about how you have uh, you use offline media, Noah. Do you have any Kodi in your life or is it is it all different different things? Yeah, so actually, I have a I had a really rough start with opening. Like, basically, we went to review the latest version of Cody on the Linux Action Show, and I was under the impression that Cody was an appliance that you installed on your computer, uh-huh. and then you could turn your computer into a media center. Right? That's not what it is. It's an application, and I, I wasn't aware of that. And in my in my ignorance, we go on the air, we start talking about this, and I start talking about how there's no there's no utility to configure the network. I, I always have to get out of Cody to go manage my network interface, and how how silly that is, and how that would never work in an, in an actual media environment. And all these people in the chat room are going, "Use OpenELEC. Use OpenELEC. Have you heard of OpenELEC? Try OpenELEC. You don't." know what you're talking about use it and that that was my that was that was my first clue that the chat room is always smarter than you oh, yeah. are and oh, so yeah. if, the, if the chat room is telling you something you need to listen to them and this is before i learned that lesson so i learned it in a very in a, in a very hard way i get off the air and i go okay what is this open elect thing they're talking about oh that's the appliance thing that turns Cody the application into an appliance. And so then I was like, oh, yeah, that was that was a huge embarrassing thing I did on the air. So I didn't really want to play with it. And after I got over that, then I actually built my first open elect box and it was incredible. Did nice. everything I wanted it to do. And I started slowly deciding that this could replace my current media player, which is the Western Digital TV Live. Right. I mentioned that numerous times. I'm a big fan of them. And what I found was the the fall through with me anyway was I have these universal remotes that communicate RF and they tie into all the home automation stuff. And the way they do that was with little IR blasters. And so I needed to be able to put the IR blasters on the open ELEC box. And so I didn't have an IR receiver. 
So I bought one, but it was like that was an additional USB port. It just got to be a pain. So I eventually wound up with a box that uh, runs Kodi, um, but it is an Android-based box. It's called, I I believe it's a Matrix. And uh, we've we've done a review on it on the Linux section, Joe, and you can find uh, notes to it. But I I have one of my open ELEC boxes left, and that's downstairs in my lab. That's what I watch media on downstairs. So there's definitely Kodi in my life. Um, I am slowly transitioning the Western Digital TV lives over to those Matrix boxes because they run Android with Android with Cody and that runs all of my local ISO media just fine and, and all the stuff I download on YouTube deal uh, runs all of that just fine. Nice. That's that's awesome. Yeah, see, that seems exactly like what it was useful for. In my case, I was kind of bundling a box together that had it was going to perform more than one function there. Uh, so after trying it out, it was just a little bit too much of a pain to get other software s- installed. So I ended up going with Ubuntu Mate. Uh, which worked really nicely. And then a couple little, you know, like a, a system D thing to start Cody. But I, I think you're right though, that like if you need it to be an, an appliance or, you know, something that can be standalone, something that a user can interact with in a consistent way, you really do want something like open elect. Exactly. Mumble room. Do you guys have any thoughts on this? Anyone using it or anyone not using it? To be honest, I always get surprised that there's so many people interested in media centers because I really don't see them useful. They're neat anymore, really. Okay, hold on, hold on, hold on. Let's talk. Let's let's talk about it. Let's talk about that for a second. Do you are you a single male that doesn't that that is is living either by yourself or your entertainment is controlled solely by you? No, that's not what I mean. Um, Because I have other people that living with me. non-technical people so it would okay. you know i can see the appeal to, to them but again I, I guess it maybe it's also because of the discrepancy in my country like what the media services also come with the tv cable provider tend to be already pre-immersive and combined with all of the rest of your network nobody really feels the need of you know i'm gonna actually make these extra box in here i, th- I think we should br- i think we should break that down we have that box off I feel like we need to break this down a little bit. So you're saying that you don't see the need for a media center because the cable company is providing it to you. Is that, am I understanding that correctly? Well, I'm saying that along like having actually the need of an extra media center or one, something that will be providing extra features, like Mm -hmm. these extra features don't seem anybody really asking for them. I'm saying personally, I always get impressed and surprised and the quantity of people interested on the topic personally. Well, let me ask you this: Do you own? Do, experienced a need? Do you own movies? Yes. How do you play them? Well, you already have either your PlayStation or you have your DVD. Okay, all right. If you all right, are let's, okay. movies, and oh. if you have a media center, if you have a media center, this is the other thing. Like I was saying, the box, the default box, just to access your channels, connects to your home network and can access any computer as long as you basically enable the permission on the computer basically the, one click away and all of a sudden your hard drive is displayed in that box right but i guess my point is that first of all i need a box that can play the media that is stored on my hard drive one click away but more importantly that the optical media thing works if you have 5 10 20 50 maybe 100 movies but i have i have something like 7000 dvds in my collection do you know what? Do you know what a task it would be just to find a given movie, let alone 
organize and store all of those movies if I had to physically store them all here at the house and have them available so that I could watch them? I mean, it, at some point, it's it's it, it becomes a scale factor and it just becomes uh, untenable, right? My NAS, I have something like 64 terabytes of storage on my NAS. My NAS, I can store as many movies as I want. And I, and I never really have to think about it or worry about it because they're, you know, I just, I click on sure. it. They're all alphabetized. Um, so Realistically, I think, how many people have 7,000 movies though too? Well, I mean, I, that might be, maybe it's, factor. I don't know exactly. <laughs> I don't know exactly. And that's, that's a combination that's, that's movies and then TV shows too, right? Because every TV show is, you know, the one season or, you know, is 24 different, you know, video files. I shouldn't say movies. I should say video files, but one season can be up to 24 video files in the case of 24. Right. And then there's eight seasons. So that's, you Multiple know, how many, not, yeah, sure. right. Right. So, I mean, th- I'm just saying that the, the media center to me, it, it makes a lot of sense if you want to organize local media. Now I could see the argument if you said, I don't care about local media. I'm just going to stream everything or I'm going to do everything off my cable provider. Okay. Very good. But then we're relying on services, right? And oftentimes not only are we relying on services, we're also having to pay for those services. And so I don't know what it's like over in your part of the world, but over here, cable starts at like $50 a month and then it goes up from there. And my sister, I think her cable package is like $300. By the time she gets done adding Yikes. all the stuff, she needs a month. Yeah. Well, it's great. And she has access to like everything under the sun, but that's a reoccurring cost. You know how many, you know how much content I can purchase with $3,000, well, really $3,600 a year? I mean, that's a lot of content if you start looking, if you start doing the math. Yeah, that's true. That's so, true. Um, um, the price might be actually a, a great point here because we started like 20 euros. It's basically, you know, 22 bucks a month and you have the channels and you have the recording and you have the streaming and you, all of that is included. You have all that as long as you included. continue to pay the ransom fee. Right. I think it, well, I think it comes down to really people's priorities. Fee. By the way, by the way, it's not a ransom fee because you actually own the box that it's in your home and that hard mm-hmm. drive. So if you download to have it locally, it's locally available even if you close the service. So if I, so if I cancel the service, I still have access to that content? Yes. See, that's okay. that's a big difference. You download it to your box. Right. That's, that's a big awesome. difference in the way it works here in the U.S. Here in the U.S., if you pay, like, you use, like, the Hopper on DirecTV, if you cancel the service, all of that pre-recorded content is gone. In fact, and this is a big thing for Cloud Connected Chris, if he were to get a, a, a DirecTV uh, subscription and he wants to take it in his RV, he has to leave that DirecTV box powered up because if he doesn't have access to the DirecTV satellites, he can't even watch his pre-recorded content, even if the subscription is active, because it has to verify that before you can play, you know, uh, pre-recorded content. So I, th- it may be somewhat different from the way it works here in the U.S. That might be partly why we have such different beliefs. Yeah, I think that sure. that sounds that sounds about right. Um, so Ryan, you were wanted to talk a little bit about your use case for Cody. Yeah, um, my wife and I uh, use a Kodi box, and we also have RetroPie installed on it. And uh, I think that for the longest time, we had a Plex server, and uh, uh-huh. we're using our TV's built-in app in order to connect to it because uh, it had a built-in Plex app. But media playback for really, really um, big content, like 4K you know, content, was not the best, and that was part partly because of the server was not the newest. So we just uh, got a new. Uh, I work at System seventy six. We got a Meerkat um, with a, with you know an i five and connected it to our television. Now we can do four K playback no problem, um, and uh, and we just moved all of our 
content locally to that box. And she really likes it because we have a couple of uh, of controllers, Super Nintendo, like USB controllers. And she likes to pop open a Retro Pie, which, like Cody, you know, that's local content, you know, that you that you own on the box and uh, and play games on it. But but she as a she's not non technical, but as a less technical user loves Cody and it didn't take any time at all to to you know for her to get started and in, in using it and uh we moved all like like Noah not 7000 videos but we moved a lot of content there and it's nice to have it local because during peak hours here you know the the internet streaming can sometimes get really crappy especially with um high dpi or high you really high def media but if it's just local on your box, you don't have to worry about, you know, what what your neighbor's pulling down, you know, and, and how stressed the pipe is. Yeah, that's a good point. Not everyone has, especially if you live in a place where you don't always have good internet connectivity or you just, you know, you share an apartment building with a bunch of other nerds who want to use internet all the time. Uh, it exactly. Can a, it can give you a lot of flexibility. Okay, so Mr. Tunnell, you also wanted to chime in here. I know you're... Um, yeah, I wanted to talk about something else, but that that this topic kind of also wanted to address the... the like, Cody's not just local, though. Like, yeah, local... Is, the Cody's great because you can do both. And... That you can do local if you want to, which is you know all the benefits of using that. But it's not like you're required to do local media. You you can use you can watch YouTube videos, you can watch uh, live streams of ESPN, all kinds of stuff on Cody. And there's even now a plugin being made for Netflix. Right, that's a good point. Also, so like, you have the ability to you to use most of the streaming stuff you want. You know, well, soon with Netflix, but it's it's not like it's it's an interface where you can have both and it's more of a a convenience interface and also you can deploy it on like a tv for your family members or maybe in like uh, a lobby of a of a business or something that's a good point there are a couple of apps on there i just wanted to make a point there are a couple of plugins that are better on cody than their apps on you know the samsung smart tv which is what i switched to recently and they they the interface is better the the ease of use is easier and there are some apps that exist on cody that simply don't exist on that platform so i think everyone i've made myself pretty clear numerous times what i think of uh you know local content versus streaming content but just for the for the purpose of an exercise i'll take devil's advocate and i'll play the other side here for a moment why Cody over just buying a Roku or an Amazon Fire Stick? I mean, why would I because, use Cody if I'm going to stream everything? Because because here's the thing. The streaming apps, the YouTube and Netflix and stuff, that stuff is amazing on those things. In fact, spending time with Chris in the RV, I mean, that's his primary source of entertainment is the NVIDIA Shield with a YouTube app. Well, I mean, my opinion, the reason why is not necessarily – if your sole purpose is to only ever stream, Roku's fine. But Cody's great because you can do both. Like if someone wants to do local as their primary, like yourself, but then occasionally maybe Netflix, Cody's perfect. Like gotcha. you have all the all the benefits that you want for both sides without having to worry about, you know, um, does this device have a specific channel? Like Roku, you're only able to watch certain things based on whether someone has made a channel for it. That makes sense. Kits and Kitty is telling me in the chat room that DirecTV has actually updated their policies for 
playing local content and they now have specific provisions for people that are in RVs. Go ahead, Kits and Kitty. Uh, I used to work for the parent company of DirecTV. Uh, so you actually need special equipment and special flags on your account to do this. This has kind of always been the case. You can't really pack up your equipment, put it on your RV, and then go because there's location-based sensors inside the uh, satellite equipment to prevent uh, pirating and uh, satellite theft. Fair enough. And I should point out, uh, Chris does not have DirecTV. He, he does. I mean, as an independent content creator, that would be that would be kind of weird. Right. But just people in like him in his position that are that are in RVs. That is a popular thing. Nomadic Fanatic, some somebody who both Chris and I follow. Uh, he went through that bout. So I should I should I should make that clarification. He doesn't have it as just using him as an example as somebody who may be interested in it. And that's very interesting, Kits and Kitty, that they've actually updated that. It's actually not something that was updated. It's something that's kind of always been there. Uh, it's just uh, a lot of people haven't had the need for it uh, and everything. So uh, one more thing. Um, regarding the Open Elect uh, news, I would suggest people check out Libre Elect instead of Open Elect, mainly because Libre Elect is um, a forked version of Open Elect. There was a basically a, like last year, they had a falling out between a lot of the developers on OpenELEC, so they branched out and made their own. And I would say that the reason why you would look at it is because they are much more up-to-date with Cody, and they're basically on the same line of when Cody updates, LibreELEC updates. So you'll see that eight, version 8.0, first version of the 17, Cody 17 being available, uh, an OpenELEC was released you know, a couple days ago. The first version of LibreElect with with version 17 of Cody was a month and a half ago. They're way more uh, up-to-date and way more attentive to everything. And you you could actually... I've been using the beta of, of Krypton or Cody 17 for months now thanks to LibreElect's consistently updating through the beta program so you can actually just keep mm-hmm. trying it the whole time. And every time there's a new beta for Cody, there's a new beta for LibreElect. What are you using it on? What what hardware are you using LibreELEC on? I tried to install OpenELEC on the on the Meerkat and it uh it didn't really like it. Um and I never troubleshot it through enough to figure out why it wouldn't install, but uh it wasn't just a straightforward install and run. I've used it on a Pi, I've used it on a laptop, and I've used it on um like a like a spare desktop computer. Okay, so that seems like a perfect opportunity to segue into our next topic. If you do have kind of trouble installing these things, here's an update from one of our favorite projects, which is Snaps. So Snap support has landed in Fedora 24, 25, and 26. They, David Callier on the Ubuntu blog writes, as part of our mission to get Snaps running everywhere, we are pleased to announce that support for Snaps has now officially landed in Fedora, starting with Fedora 24 and up. Big thanks to Neil Gompa, who has been instrumental in landing SnapD packages in the Fedora archive. So then they uh, they kind of go through some steps, you know, sudo dnf install SnapD, which is kind of fun just to see. Um, they've got a little prov- provisos here and there for if you're running on Fedora 24. Um, but, you know, if, you, if you're hearing all the Ubuntu news and you're thinking, well, uh, you know, even with no Ubuntu, maybe I still really like Fedora, this kind of goes a little bit of the way to bridging the gap between those systems and might make it a little bit easier to install some of your favorite software that might not be in the Fedora repos. 
What do you guys think? Is this something that, that you guys would actually use, or is it just a uh, novelty? <laughs> use Fedora. You're uh, funny. Uh, well, uh, as someone who was, uh, to be honest, really against the whole idea of these containerizing of apps, uh, Snap has gotten really great. Uh, and it, it it just works, TM, a lot. Uh, so this, as far as I'm concerned, like I'm really looking forward to it uh, being available there because you know a lot of people go and say, oh, you know, Snap, it's just an Ubuntu thing. It only really works there. So when as it actually moves out and people like see it, I think that it's going to have a lot stronger standing, especially dealing with uh, you know its competitors. Yeah, Snaps are. Um available on a lot of distros now and the the only holdout was really fedora so now that it's hats on there it's, it's fantastic yeah I'd I've, like- I've been using snaps for quite a lot and i think snaps are going to be uh so far they seem to be the most potential uh, against the other ones yeah I'd, li- I'd like to point out i did some snap packaging uh of a couple of apps and i re and i noticed that uh they actually the desktop apps i i packaged um respect my uh, desktop settings like themes and so on more than their than Flatpak, even though I'm using Ubuntu GNOME now. Um, also, they they just yeah they just like uh, Wizard pointed out they just work a lot of the times and that's really <laughs> you don't want to think about how something is packaged when you when you use it you just want to use it. Right, yeah, there's definitely a lot of places where you're just like, okay, I need to get this thing done, let me install it, how can I install it? Oh no, library problems, and if the snap works, then you're like, okay, great, now it works. The the flat packs don't have support for themes and fonts uh, because they don't they just don't have any uh, connections to the desktop, whereas the snaps have a specific, uh, I guess, snap app desktop uh, package where it's specifically for, if you if you uh, include that as a dependency of your snap, it will be able to detect whatever settings you have set nice. up on your desktop. And yeah, also, a, like I've been working on doing snaps and stuff, and I've I've been working on all of it. But I I noticed one of my favorite things about Snap is that I can have uh, my project on GitHub, and then I can just mirror everything I do onto Launchpad, and when Launchpad will automatically make a snap every time I change something in my in my commits. Kits and Kitty has uh, brings up an interesting point, and I have asked this question before. Um, Kits and Kitty, do you want to ask uh, your question about the difference between Deb RPM and Snaps? Yeah, I mean, we already have a universal package format. It's called RPM, Dev, Tar, GZ, Flatpak, App Image. I mean, every one of these try to, you know, at some point be the universal standard. And it's just one more thing that we have to support. Okay, so that's Uh, the question. Michael, do you want to see it? Can you address that for us? RPMs and devs have never been universal. They're they're even they're even specific. They're not only they're specific to distros. They're specific to distro, distro versions. And uh, and and when you say that we already had flat packs and app images, yes, we had app images first. Flat packs are actually older, or like, or uh, they're they were made after snaps. Snaps were beat flat packs by like three weeks or something. So it's there's like there isn't actually a universal applet format yet. And all of like the devs and RPMs are not. That's not even what they're meant to be doing. Now, what do you prefer, Michael, from a, from the standpoint of a universal package? Would you do you think flat packs are better? Do you think snaps are better? And then my second part of that question is, regardless of what you think is technically superior, which one do you think we're going to wind up on? I think technically superior is snaps, but I think as far as usability wise, now app images are much more usable because they're easily accessible. 
uh, whereas snaps still have work to do. So, like, I think in the long run, snaps are going to win. Um, but I think uh, app images are going to get a large chunk really early because you can just create an app image right now and run it. That makes a lot of sense. Wes, what do you think? Yeah, you know, I'm I'm definitely interested in it. I've played a lot more with things like like Docker um, in in this space for server side apps. That's that's one thing. But I I was looking, you know, deploying software is an interesting problem. Uh, I think there's there's different angles from the server side and the desktop side, and that's where one thing like I really I, I really like kind of the the things that snap some of the the abstractions that they're using. It seems like they've thought about these things, and whether or not you want the sandboxing or not. The the way that they've kind of described here's the ways that you can connect their like ports and sockets. What are they called? Something like that. Um, I think it makes it very useful, and I'm excited for a world where I'm, I'm hopeful that some of these splits can make it a little bit easier. Where we can focus like our package, the package management standards that we have now that work really well with open source software software or things that work really well as libraries or yeah. system things. I'm really yeah. hopeful that I, that will let us focus I, there. I, I completely agree. And one of the things is being able to test all of this stuff on various distros. And, you know, a great way to do that is if you have access to simultaneous machines, so you can kind of compare. This is how this works on Ubuntu. This is how this works on CentOS. Are you following me? That That's kind of that really starts to bring it home. And so one of the things that's been really helpful to me, and I don't know about you, Wes, is, you know, DigitalOcean. That's a great way where I can spin up four or five different servers running four or five different distros. And I can see, okay, Snaps works really well on Ubuntu. Okay, but does it work on CentOS? Yeah, we can get it to work. We just have to, you know, tweak this or tweak that. Okay, how about Flatback? Does that work on this distro or that distro? Have you found that to be the case, Wes? Oh, yeah. No, I think I think that's exactly the case. It makes it so – DigitalOcean just makes it so easy to get started, right? I mean, you just you just go over to digitalocean.com, you use our promo code DO unplugged. That gets you a $10 credit. And when you find out that it starts at $5 a month, yeah, $5 a month, you can spin up one of these awesome droplets in under 55 seconds and then bam, you just have a throwaway disposable system, whatever Linux, pretty much whatever Linux system you want. They've got all the best ones and because it's a real KVM hypervisor, you can install whatever Linux you want. There's some instructions. It'll probably take your Linux game to the next level. But that's the thing. DigitalOcean, that's what they want. They support that. So just get started. You get a $10 credit. If you start with the $5 plan, you get like 512 MB of RAM, 20 gigs of SSD drive, a CPU, and a terabyte of transfer. One of the things I love about DigitalOcean, it's that transfer. They really make sure that you, you have the bandwidth and the networking capability that you need. And that is not true of all cloud providers. So it makes it like a go-to for me. Like there's a lot of times, you know, we were talking earlier about like when you have bandwidth problems or connection problems. Um, I've, I've had to talk with some servers like in Europe, say, and a lot of like the residential ISPs, sure, you know, you got good connectivity. You want to go talk to a server in California, fine, but they don't always have the best connections across the Atlantic or to Europe. DigitalOcean has great peering. They have great networks. So I'll just proxy some of my connections through DigitalOcean and they'll like instantly be faster, even though I'm adding a whole, another hop to the path. It's just it's just better. So some other things you might really like about DigitalOcean, they have data center locations all over the world. New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, London, Toronto, Frankfurt. These are all places, one, I'd like to visit. And then two, these are great data center locations. They understand how these work. They've got great peering, 40 gigabit E right into that hypervisor. And, and they have really ramped up their game in terms of competing with some of their competitors. They've got monitoring. They've got load balancing. They've got private networking. If you have droplets in the same data center, 
DigitalOcean has just been killing it, and now is like the best time to go try it. So just head on over to DigitalOcean.com. Use our promo code DOUnplug. That lets DigitalOcean know that you appreciate them sponsoring the Linux Unplugged program. And then you can come back next week and tell us about all the awesome things you've been doing with our friends over at DigitalOcean. Ah, okay, so after that, DigitalOcean is an awesome platform for getting stuff done. So I just wanted to kind of like rapid fire. There's still a discussion topic I really want to get to. But before we get there, I just wanted to highlight a couple projects I saw this week that I thought would be interesting. And then I'm just going to run through these and then we can kind of talk about them. Noah, I want to get your input. Um, Absolutely. First up, it's kind of an older project. It hasn't seen a ton of use, but I thought it might be interesting. It's called Journal Trigger D and it runs a trigger on Systems D journal messages. So it kind of hooks up to the journal, waits for messages, and then you can kind of define it as a script runner, right? So you're like, oh, well, when I see this log line, right? Or maybe, um, you know, I'm running fail to ban or something elsewhere. It outs- it's outputting things to the journal. Something happens. And then this is able to parse it. You can kind of configure things so that then it will launch whatever program you want. Maybe that's to send you a text message or that's to restart a service. Uh, so that's just one thing. I think Systemd adds a lot of that nice format, right? Like the journal it does a really good job of capturing input and output to programs. It does a good job of, like, you can ha- express it in JSON if you want. So if you want to have it machine readable. Uh, so I just thought that was neat. I wonder if anyone would be would find that useful. Next up, here is something from Mark Kolich. He's a software engineer, and he has a nice blog post about how to manually throttle the bandwidth of a Linux network interface. So this is something I've run into. Um, I know at least a couple times at work I was doing backups of other things and I accidentally triggered an alarm where, ooh, I'm using like a whole bunch of the traffic through the switch or something like that. Um, I was using uh, Pipe Viewer PV, so it was pretty easy to to throttle it that way. Um, But it made me curious about like, well, you know, what is the best way to do that? If I want to say that this application can only get this much bandwidth or partition things or say like, you know, traffic on this port should only use this much, uh, on Linux, in, in the new IP Route 2 package, there is the TC command, which is traffic control. But it's very poorly documented by, like, like a lot of things, um, unfortunately, in that package. And it's rather confusing to use. Uh, so I thought this was a really good blog post just as an introduction about, like, you know, how you might do, how you might do that if you need to do traffic shaping, traffic control, anything like that. Uh, this gives you something of a starting point where you can kind of get a get a grip on this very complicated topic because once you use it, it works very nicely. It works very effectively, efficiently. It's just a little hard to get started with. And I think the, oh, go on. I, no, that's okay. I just was going to stop <clears throat> stop you for a second. Just say the interesting thing, and I've seen this transition in the industry. I'd be curious because I know you work in industry as well to see if you've seen the same thing, and that is that they are trying to. Um, bring together the networking side and the server side. And I think the rationale behind that is if you train a bunch of people that are system administrators and know how to administrate the Linux system, and if we can take those skills and use them to administrate the network side, now as a company, we don't have to employ system administrators and network engineers. We can just let the system administrators deal with all this stuff. Do you kind of see that same trend? And do you see this, uh, you know, these new tools in Linux going to that end? You know, you know, I do. I think... I'm not sure that that's exactly where it's going to go, but I do think we've seen a lot of developments like Ansible in particular has been targeting switch platforms, router platforms, um, because we want to be able to use these same kinds of tools to, you know, tools that sysadmins already understand for managing the servers to be able to manage the network hardware. And in in kind of the opposite way, one of the projects I've been following is Cumulus Linux. Um, 
I would love to have a Cumulus Linux switch in my house, but there's like really no options under a grand right now. Uh, but what they do is they, um, you know, they, they use these like uh, Broadcom switch fabrics to do software-defined networking, but they have implemented a, basically a kernel module that implements all the standard Linux IP table stuff, but accelerated with this proprietary Broadcom SDK. Uh, so that lets you use all your standard commands, but on this, you know, actual nice. hardware that has, you know, full networking support where you can get real performance. So I think, I think nice. you're re- dead on about that. Especially in, a world, especially in a world where, you know, you have these proprietary networking devices that have different command lines, different configurations. They're all kind of similar, but all kind of different. That makes a lot of sense. Okay, so one more, one more thing I'd like to highlight really quick here is HashiCorp Packer has hit their 1.0 release. So HashiCorp is, is, a, neat, is a neat thing. Uh, they're the people behind Vagrant and a few few other tools that you might be familiar if you do any sort of development or sysadmin or DevOps, if you will. Uh, so they're proud to announce that HashiCorp Packer 1.0 has been re- released. Packer is a tool for building images for cloud platforms, virtual machines, containers, and more from a single source configuration. They say that Packer 1.0 is a significant milestone. It's a powerful and full-featured tool to create cloud images and application packages. Uh, so if you're not familiar with it, it really, it's ex- that's exactly what it does, right? It, so you can kind of define your configuration, how you want it to look, what distribution it is, and then it handles all of the details about packing that into the right format. You know, so whether you want a QCow image, or you want an AMI, or you want something that can run on a DigitalOcean droplet, or you just want something that can run on libvirt, it does it all. It'll even do you know bare metal images, that kind of thing. So I know we've used it at work. I've seen other projects and and uh, companies that use it. And I just thought it'd be good to to mention it. Noah, do you use anything like this uh, at alt speed to kind of like, you know, if you need to build a bunch of images before you, you know, pixie boot them or images to deploy at customer spaces? Do you, do you guys use any tools? We do use tools. We've never used uh, that specifically. But what we've done is we actually have a a, a server where we, we still use plain old, uh, um, what's the name of it? Uh, Clonezilla. Plain old Clonezilla. Oh. And, and, and you know what's great? Here's what we've got. We've gotten to a point now where we have a Clonezilla image server where we keep images. So like when the new Optiplex 3020 comes out, we'll install Ubuntu 16.04 and we'll configure it and we'll put the you know Adobe Reader and the, the Flash Player and all the junk that none of us really want on our computers, but we have to have them to make them useful. Then we make an image of that machine. We store that on our image server. And what we've started doing lately is we've started syncing the most commonly used images down to a small 2.5 inch um, USB drive SSD. And we take that into this little backpack sling that we have along with a USB copy of Clonezilla so that we can go on site to a customer's premise and say, okay, we need to redo this machine. Okay, we'll go ahead and take this USB key, we'll stick it in, we plug the USB drive in, then we re-image the machine. That's been absolutely fantastic. And I'll tell you, you know, you brought up Pixie Boot, and that just kind of sent, it just kind of made me have PTSD there for a second. I, I just, bet. If, you, if you've set up a, a Pixie Boot server, then you'll understand why I have PTSD. And if you haven't set up a Pixie Boot server, I highly recommend it. Uh, it's a great, great opportunity to realize how little you know. Yes, and to learn something about the Linux boot process and all of the mysteries and vagaries that are contained within. And if you're going to do it, try iPixie. It's fantastic. Great open source project for managing all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a good point. Wasn't it? It was like used to be G Pixie or something. Did they change their name at one point? If I recall, it's possible they did. 
but either way, yeah, they have a lot of great support. You can both run it. You know, you can like chain load into it, or they have some versions that you can flash onto right. like chain the Pixie ROM. Really popular because people don't want to flash the ROMs on all their disparate machines, and it's pretty easy to push a config that just loads this binary up off the network. Yes, I mean, I think even like Arch Linux provides one of those, right? So you chain load into right. it, and it automatically goes and grabs the latest images from their servers. Which, hey, that's uh, that's pretty slick. So speaking of things that are slick, let's just let's just do it. We all love them. Let's jump over to our next sponsor this week. That's our friends over at Ting. What is Ting? Ting is the mobile service provider that just they just make sense. They make mobile make sense, and that's their mission. And that's what you'll find about Ting. Things that you really love. They have a mission, right? They're they're just not. I mean, obviously they're business. They want to make money, but they have a mission. They are they are passionate people, and that is that is to change mobile. So they. They resell, right? So they have they have both CDMA and GSM, and that I think really is one of the factors that's defined Ting, and it lets them it lets them change the way that mo- the game that mobile is played, right? So they can focus on their customers, and that uh, it, it's amazing. So whether you're using their app, which is great, whether you're using your web their website, which is great, or you're actually calling in and you get to talk to a real human, which you will, you'll find that they're some of the friendliest people. And they had some of the best customer service in the entire mobile industry. Beyond that, they have no contracts, no early termination fees, and you just pay for what you use. Yeah, that's right. Minutes, messages, megabytes, doesn't matter. Pay for what you use. They make it really easy to find out how much you'll save as well. So just head on over to ting.com, right? That's linux.ting.com. Hit this, what would you save button? And there you'll find this wonderful rate chart. It's like, it's... Honestly, it's one of my favorite things. I kind of come here, even in my spare time, I just kind of click around. It's fun to just estimate. Like, lines start at $6 a month. So whether you need it just as a backup cell phone that you keep in the truck for when you're out in the country, or if you use it as a backup data connection to your home server, it doesn't matter. It's $6 a month. You can kind of just forget about it. You buy one less coffee or one less hamburger, and then you have a whole ting line. Then you just kind of click around like, eh, you know, someone might call me. So let's say I have 100 minutes. No one ever texts me, and I love it. So that's zero. And then all the rest of that, I can just spend on my data. And even if I use a gig of data, like what happened? I lost my Wi-Fi connection. I don't know. My monthly bill? Yeah, that's right. $25 a month. And that number, that number, my friends, if you head over to linux.ting.com, you are going to get a $25 service credit. So as you can see, that will probably pay for your entire first month's bill, if not more. Or, or let's say you don't have a cell phone that you love, just pop on over to the Ting store. They've got an awesome selection of phones. They start at super reasonable prices. And if you want to, not on the necessarily, you know, you can't use it on the Alcatel One Touch Fling, but if you're, if you're buying a nice new phone, you know, like this um, Motorola Moto G4 Play, that service credit can apply there too. Plus, they have a lot of stuff, you know, they understand that you might just want to use them, as we were talking about at the beginning of this show, you know, you might just want to use them as an LTE connection to your house. If that's the case... They've got this Home Connect device. They've got a ton of options. They really make it easy. And you know what? On Ting, it really is mobile plans for adults, right? On Ting, you don't you don't have to pay more for extra services, right? There's no there's no contracts. There's no early termination fees. There's no add-on charges. So voicemail, caller ID, tethering, hotspot, three-way calling, call forwarding, all of these just come right with your service. So if you're unhappy with hey, your West. mobile service plan, just go to linux.ting.com. Wes, can I tell you how uh, Ting is going to be working with Ask Noah? 
please not, do. Not, officially, not like the company ting is going to be working officially with not that not that but i'm going to activate a sim and i have a product here and i'm throwing a link in the chat room but basically what this thing does is it gives me a public address a, a public ip on ting's lte network so the advantage is what i can do is i can purchase this device and put a, a Ting LTE chip in it, and then I have a public address, and I can plug that into this new remote broadcast system that we have, so I will be able to do Ask Noah from anywhere as long as I have this device and a Ting GSM card. Of course, because it's only $6 a month, that's that's all I have to pay. If I don't you do a remote broadcast, oh, well, 6 bucks a month. And if I do a remote broadcast, I only pay for the data that I use. It really is. Uh, it really is great, and it makes it very easy. Exactly for those kinds of use cases where you just want to plug and play, fit it into your workflow, and it just works. So go over to linux.ting.com today and start saving on your monthly cell phone plan. <sighs> okay. So speaking of things that are maybe less efficient than our friends over at Ting. This article, I just thought, no, no, it seemed kind of interesting to me, uh, just as a just as a news update. Banks scramble to fix old systems as IT cowboys ride into the sunset. Oh boy! Bill Henshaw is not a typical seventy-five-year-old. He divides his time between his family. He has thirty-two grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Oh my! And helping U.S. companies avert crippling computer meltdowns. Hinshaw, who got into programming in the 1960s when computers took up entire rooms and programmers used punch cards, is a member of a dwindling community of IT veterans who specialize in a vintage programming language called COBOL. The common business-oriented language developed nearly 60 years ago and has been gradually replaced by newer, more versatile languages such as Java, C, and Python. Although few universities still offer COBOL courses, the language remains crucial to businesses and institutions around the world. In, in 2013, Hinshaw launched a new company, Cobalt Cowboys, which connects companies to programmers like himself. So they're really, I love this quote here. Of the 20 cowboys that work as part-time consultants, many have reached retirement age, though there are some youngsters, Hinshaw said. Well, I call them youngsters, but they're in their 40s, early 50s. Experienced Cobalt programmers can earn more than $100 an hour when they get called in to patch up glitches, rewriting coding manuals, or making new systems work with the old. This seems to me like something that's going to keep happening as some of these really big companies kind of phase out into new systems. And I wonder, Noah, if you've seen any of this over at Altaspeed or, you know, is this an area where Linux can really, you know, the flexibility of Linux, the open source and just the ease of deployment and the, you know, it can really it can fit in so many different use cases. Is this something that you have encountered or you see like a real opportunity for Linux to gain traction? I definitely see the opportunity for it. I, I can't say that we have we have we have executed on that opportunity at all to speed. Yeah, I know that's not very helpful to you. <laughs> no, yeah, no, we, we've not really we've not really taken that opportunity. Yeah. Okay. So, Wizard, uh, what would you like to say about that? Yeah. No. Uh, it's it's actually a legitimate problem. The, one of the big things, at least where I am right now, is uh, so many old businesses just basically went off of COBOL and many old systems still rely on it. And uh, there's just, you know, there's not a whole lot of places that uh, that teach it. And to be honest, you know, it's one of those things that a lot of, you know, university colleges, et cetera, will try and give as an option to students, but it's not fun. You know, it's not something that is used and can easily branch into other languages just because of really what COBOL is. 
it really is something that was used in the 70s and designed in the 60s, and it doesn't translate well to other languages, so it's almost a disservice to teach it to, to people. Because it's, it's like, okay, we'll teach you COBOL, but if you want to go and learn Java, Python, whatever, it's just, you know, it's almost, you, you've lost a, a full semester. To, it's kind of kicking the can down the road, so to speak. Exactly. Yeah. You know, it's 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 not helpful. And, and this is the thing. Like, so many banks, and I'm not kidding. Like, I bet you, I would say over probably 60% of all banks uh, in the U.S. and Canada and probably just North America in general uh, all use COBOL. Like, it's just, it's it's there. It's omnipresent. And everyone in the back rooms are panicking because, like, even, you know, where, where I work, uh, we have COBOL programs, and we're not even in the financial sector, which is where it was huge. So it, it touches everything. Yep, I think that, I think that's exactly right. Uh, and it's one of those areas like you know you're you're just stuck in the past. You you know you maybe need like specific mainframes to run it on. You have these systems that are business critical, where you really you know your business depends on not having downtime, having these systems work, and and maybe you just you know you don't have experts IBM, left ibm systems e-series is completely almost completely funded just by cobol wow I, hugely I, I that's so you go and you see the s396 package you'll sometimes see in distro packages and things like that and you're like oh, that's kind of odd i don't remember that that being that that's the ibm systems e-system and that's almost all funded by cobol interesting yeah. oh, okay well so i think that's a that's a good good segue um to transition to something a little more modern, and that is Pinterest. So Linux.com has been having a neat series about the companies that support Linux and open source. Uh, And this week, they'd like to hire, they'd like to, you know, they'd like to talk about Pinterest. So I thought this was kind of interesting just as someone, you know, who's, who's very interested in open source. I think we all are attached to it as a platform and see that it, you know, it should be used and supported by these big internet companies. Uh, So Libby Clark here, uh, talks with John Price over the technical architecture lead and open source program lead over and Pinterest. And I just thought this was like a really interesting article kind of just about one, if you don't know what Pinterest is, not that, not that I use it, but just as an example of one of these popular websites whose user base doesn't use Linux, isn't aware of Linux really maybe, I mean, some are sure, but, um, but where a lot of that, you know, all that technology on the background is, is powered by it. So, you know, part of the stuff here is uh, they ask how and why do you use Linux and open source? And he, he answers, Pinterest is built on open source. From our first lines of Django code over six years ago to the release of Rocksplicator, our latest open source project, we've directly benefited from open source projects and the supportive communities surrounding them. In turn, we've made significant contributions to the open source technologies we use and have pushed the limits of technologies like HBase. Internally, open source is part of a product cycle. I think that's a key thing. We frequently open source the technologies we build as both a way to give back to the communities and because it's the right thing to do. Uh, so they've recently joined the Linux Foundation. I think that's neat. And they, they, they talk about how the Linux Foundation is home to Linux. It's home to Node.js and other mission-critical projects that form the backbone of modern internet services, such as people like like Pinterest. Uh, I just thought this was like a neat article kind of highlighting like how, how useful open source is and one of the good guys, because we see a lot of companies that use open source but might not be very active in supporting it, might not be give back, might not open source their own tools. Not that they have to, right? I mean, if they modify a GPL code, yes, they do. Um, but for a lot of these, you know, it, that's not the license or they're not redistributing it. Uh, so it's really nice to see kind of how people in these key positions 
at these companies are able to give back or how they see open source as part of their workflow, how it can make them make their jobs easier and, and help them, you know, be a successful business. I, I agree. And I, I also think it's very interesting that you you are now seeing these large companies, you know, and I saw this a lot with Dell where they're not just interested in making a buck off the back of open source. They're genuinely interested in contributing upstream. They're genuinely interested in being a valuable resource to the community, becoming a part of the community and growing with the community rather than stomping on the backs of the community to make their money. Right. Right. Yes, exactly. And it's not, you know, there's nothing wrong with making money. And in fact, I think we should encourage, you know, people to build profitable businesses using right. this but that's where it's awesome to right. see that like yeah we realize and you know especially like when you can open source something a lot of times you know especially if you do a good job it's not just like what you know throwing it over the wall and forgetting about it but if you can make sure that like you know you use the open source app from the public github internally then you get to benefit from all the feature you know new features bug fixes anything else that the awesome community of open source people are going to provide for you there's also a, an interesting thing that uh, pinterest does as far as um like the design of their website was like the first one to do a, like a fully co- like a column responsive uh, card based system that's like uh, constantly uh, adjusting itself for for the size of the content. Um, they release some of their code for uh, the how that works and also an API that explains stuff. So the the documentation was taken to make like and there's like probably five or six frameworks now that are built on top of that uh, that design structure. Oh, yeah, that's an interesting that's an interesting history as, you know, as we've come to this like single page app future that we all live in now. OK, so talking about open source thing, open source projects um, over at Dave Cheney's blog, he has a has a post, something we've touched on a little bit, but I think we've seen this trend only continue. I wanted to revisit it. He writes about why Slack is inappropriate for open source communications. He says, uh, I've, t- I've, okay, also full disclosure, his employer does make a Slack alternative, so that's something to know. But he's tweeted a few times about my frustration with the movement of open source projects from open asynchronous communication tools like forums, mailing lists, and issue trackers to closed synchronous communication services like Slack. This post is a long-form version of this gripe. So he first starts out with, what is Slack good for? Before I stick the boot in, let's talk about the good things about synchronous chat applications like Slack, HipChat, and so on. In a work context, chat applications take place take the place of at staff email blasts about fire system testing, broken lives, blah blah. You know all those things. It's a place where you can you know you know that people are are there and have seen your messages. But in the context of an open source project, Slack, HipChat, Gitter, etc., they they provide a forum for advocacy, gossip, informal discussion, and support. Right? In some ways, very similar to what you might find in an IRC room. Um, his complaints start when Slack and friends are promoted as a recommended way to communicate with the project. So then he writes, why is Slack bad for open source communication? One, Slack et al. are paid services with closed memberships. Sure, there are lots of little apps running on Heroku dinos that automate the send me an invite process. But fundamentally, these are closed systems. This means that the content inside those systems is closed. I cannot link to a discussion in a Slack channel in a tweet. I cannot refer to it in an issue report, and I cannot cite it in a presentation. Knowledge is siloed to those who have the time and the ability to participate in chat services in real time. And then secondly, Slack et al. are based on synchronous communication, which discriminate against those who do not or cannot take part of the conversation in real time. For example, 
Real-time chat discriminates against those who aren't in the same time zone. You can't fully participate in an open-source project if all the discussion happens while you're asleep. Even if you are in the same time zone, real-time chat assumes a privilege that you have the spare time, or employer who doesn't mind you being constantly distracted, to be virtually present in a chat room. Online chat clients are resource hogs and presume the availability of a fast computer and ample, always-on internet connection. Again, raising the bar for participation. So, okay, so what uh, what do you think of that? Yeah, okay. So let's start and break this down. First of all, I don't necessarily agree with his premise that um, Slack is not the best choice for open source communities. I, I'm i having a hard time agreeing with how he arrived at that solution in any way, shape, or form, even stretching my imagination. I'll, let me explain why. To, so first of all, this asynchronous versus synchronous chat. When I am working, particularly at Alta Speed, we work with people from all over the country and sometimes from people outside the country, right? But I expect those people to deliver on in a, in a time fashion that is conducive to my clients, right? I don't want to hear, well, it's 5 a.m. my time, so I'm not going to address those messages or respond to that ticket. Too bad. Then don't work for me. Go work for somewhere that has your time zone because we have a deadline to meet and you need to meet those deadlines. And I'd be happy to, to take, uh, to take your labor and, 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 you know, compensate you for that, but you need to meet the, you need to meet the requirements of the business. So that, that to me sounds like a ridiculous premise that we can't have real, we shouldn't have real time communication because it might exclude some people. Those people need to work when the work is getting done, unless their job, like, you know, the web guy, right? I don't care if the web guy does his job at three in the morning or seven in the morning, I'll send him requirements. That's perfectly fine. And there's no reason why he can't use Slack to, I can put what I want in and he can pick that message up when he has time. I think Slack perfectly supports synchronous and asynchronous communication. So I disagree with this premise there. The, the, the reason that I have a problem with Slack is because it's not open source. It is tied to a central service. But the, the reality that we live in is that people, especially businesses, tend to go with the lowest common denominator and they tend to go with the place of or the path of least resistance. And the thing is with Slack, and I know this just from just from my experience with Jupiter Broadcasting, it's not that we wouldn't want to go to another service. It's not that we don't want to use something else, but somebody else has to make that product or service available so that I can go to the website, sign up with my username and password click on a button and then it's just up and somebody else has to manage it and update it and maintain it and deal with all of the tie-ins and stuff because frankly at Jupiter Broadcasting we just don't have the resources to manage every single thing ourselves even though in an ideal world even though from an ideological standpoint we acknowledge that that's a better way to go it simply isn't cost effective it simply isn't practical sometimes no I think that's a really good point and that's I think that's a lot of how people get hooked in uh, the, the parts that most resonated with me so I think you're right like that you know it does it does work well for closed teams or you know when you have an accountability thing right like we're all going to be here we need to get this done i expect you to be you know responsive to me um what struck me about it was just the you know like you can't reference it it is close like you can't you know on bug reports or other things you can't easily link to a slack conversation if you don't have an account there i think the other thing too is for open source projects right like you might be a really big contributor um to a project, but if if you know most of the core team is in America and they have a Slack conversation, and that is what's considered like that's how we decided we were going to do this next move, or yes, we were going to accept this PR. Um, you might feel very left out in ter- you know 
if instead it was a mailing list discussion where over the course of a couple of days, then you, when you were awake, you could respond to it. Now, obviously that makes a much slower cycle and that might not work for a lot of people. Um, but I, I guess I can see where he's coming from. Well, couldn't you argue that, um, like, I agree that what Noah said about the asynchronous versus synchronous, that's not the issue with Slack. It's the, it, You could argue that the, the, private, the private aspect of Slack is what makes it appealing to companies, whereas open source right. projects don't really work that well for uh, a, any kind of private chat like that. Exactly. But in the sense of the open source software, you wouldn't even need Slack in the first place because there are alternatives that provide the exact same functionality including asynchronous and synchronous so um the at intergos we did a a, a, a test to see if we could get um basically have an irc channel that also has asynchronous chat so any anytime anybody wants to make a conversation have, have a conversation about it they can go scroll back up and look at anything and you can do that with matrix so if you create a, a matrix bridge with irc channels you can have the benefits of irc which is real time and you can have the asynchronous benefits of Matrix, and have them and have the, the same the conversation completely synced. So either way, if you're available now or available later, you can still include and be included in the conversation. I think that's a, a yeah, that's a very good point. And uh, I think the Matrix project is definitely something that people, if they aren't familiar with it, that's uh, definitely something that they should check out. So something you said, Noah, that made me think that it's a perfect segue for us. So you're talking about like. Yeah, you know, a lot of times we don't have the resources, especially, you know, podcasts are the first thing. Content creation is really what Jupiter Broadcasting focuses on. And we don't always have the time or extra time to focus on, you know, building our own servers, maintaining them. But something that really helps me when I do, you know, when we do have business critical needs, podcast critical needs to get things, things done, that's our friends over at Linux Academy. Go to linuxacademy.com slash unplugged. Start, you'll get a seven-day free trial. That's right, one-week free trial to Linux Academy. And believe me, if you're anything like me, you will be hooked. So what is Linux Academy? Linux Academy, it's the Linux-first online training program, right? This is not like one of those sites where it's, you know, focused on academic courses or it's focused on just teaching you, you know, how to garden, how to knit. Oh, yeah, and how to install Apache on your server. No, Linux Academy is built by Linux experts, people who've been using Linux for years, who use it on the server. They've come together to make this awesome courseware, a cohesive program that will teach you all the skills you need to get your next job in open source, in the private industry, wherever you want to go. Linux Academy, they've really come a long way. You can run on any of seven plus available Linux distributions and they customize their courseware to make sure that it works for you, right? So, oh, I really need to get, you know, my next, I got a new job. I've been on Debian for my whole life, but they're using Red Hat. Linux Academy, just turn there. It's the perfect place to go. They have all these nifty features that really, it really takes them to the next level, right? There's a lot of online tutorials or resources for learning things. You know, I can go Google X tutorial and find something. Linux Academy is not really in that same space because what they provide is up-to-date, maintained, state-of-the-art interactive courses taught by real instructors with community members. So you have this whole platform of people who are trying to learn the same thing. And, and what's most helpful to me is they have this, they know how long it's going to take you, right? So you can, gives you the ability to estimate, like, I really need to learn Ruby, right? I don't know Ruby. I, I come from Python. I need Ruby for my next job. How long is it going to take me? How do I learn it? You don't have to go struggle and like, oh, do I buy a book? Do I, what, what do I do? No, just go to Linux Academy. They've got these, these courses that will, one, there's a lot of industry respect for. So it'll, you know, your employer will see that and say, look, they've, you know, 
they can go look what these courses are and understand exactly what you've learned and understand that you've proven yourself and that what your skill level is at. And two, they give you tools to say like, okay, this is a six-hour class. This is how long it's going to take. I can expect that's what it's going to be. And at the end of it, you have very quantified outcomes about what you're going to know and what you're going to be able to do. Um, and they have a ton of tools to let you keep track of your progress, right? So you're not like, oh, yeah, last week when I had time, uh, what, which chapter was I on? What was I learning? Now, Linux Academy, it's very structured so that it gives you, especially for busy professionals, uh, busy students, whatever you are, right? You're, you're busy with trying to make things and you just need a little bit of help. And Linux Academy is at that perfect level where these are the people, you know, they use it every day. They've come from this background. They've built their whole site using Linux. So they're, they really are experts. They really do dog food it. And, and if you're, if you're, if you're in one of those situations where you need to learn AWS or something like that, it comes with the server. You don't have to worry about spinning up a new AWS server and then a year later getting a big bill from AWS. No, Linux Academy takes care of it. They spin up just the distro that you need. You get your own server to play with so you can interact with the courseware. So if you have some goals, you want to get a new job in DevOps, open source, backend servers, head over to linuxacademy.com slash unplugged, start your seven day free trial Take some courses, try some of their nuggets, which are just you know little bite-sized, tasty morsels of learning that really get you started and really get you hooked. LinuxAcademy.com slash unplugged. Ah, all right. So I think that brings us to our discussion topic this week. And that is the big news over at our friends at Ubuntu. Ubuntu abandoning Unity in favor of GNOME. So on April 5th, Canonical announced that they would no longer be developing Unity and they were going to transition for 18.04 to GNOME. This also, you know, that's also had implications for their mobile platform, mobile, pla- what was it? mobile platform, uh, as well as, you know, the mirror display manager. There's a lot going on that was covered in Linux Action Show. I just thought this might be a really good platform for the Mumble Room. I, I think we were all, you know, it was kind of a surprise. It was a, it was a big surprise in some of the biggest um, Linux news this year, I would say. Uh, Noah, I'd like to turn it over to you. What were your thoughts as someone who's deployed a lot of Unity desktops and a lot of Ubuntu operating systems? I think that Ubuntu from the start has been marching to the beat of their own drum with their own desktop environment. And I think that they have done a lot of really positive things in the space. In fact, I stand by this. I think they have the best multi-monitor support of any desktop environment, bar none, not GNOME, not KDE. Unity really perfected the multi-monitor support to the point that I could use six monitors flawlessly. And I and and so I have this this internal dichotomy on on one hand <clears throat> I would really like to see I've really wanted to see Ubuntu working with the existing desktop environments that are supported on multiple distros and stuff like that. And so we have everyone kind of working on the same page. And on the other hand, I definitely can see where Unity shines through. When you sit down at an Ubuntu desktop, it's very, very evident that the desktop environment is made by the same people that make the operating system and that all of the applications that run are aware of how the desktop works. So I'll give you an example. You mean because it's all purple, right? That's part of it. The background change, you know, you change the background and then the bar and stuff will change to accommodate. There's little stuff like that. But more than that, though, there are so many times in GNOME or GNOME where I will install an application and it doesn't seem to be aware of an extension. And the, the, the best example I have of that is the dash to dock 
extension. So you turn on that extension. If I maximize a window, it's clearly not aware that there is a dock there and it will extend past the dock and I can't click on certain buttons. And I've tried the auto hide and, and you know, I, and I talked to Chris about this frustration. His answer was basically, well, just don't use the dock. Just get rid of, just stop using the dock. That was just, and you know, if there's a feature that I like and it, and it is available, I feel like I should be able to use it. And there is no feature inside of unity that if you turn it on, or you enable it, it makes something else not work correctly, right? Like, so there, it, it has a very cohesive feel to it and there's a lot of polish to it. And so I commend them for that. And I hope that they can take that same, that same direction, focus and leadership of polish and bring that to the GNOME desktop and tie that back into Ubuntu. I think that would be really, really great. But overall, I, I have to say, and I know this is, this is a little bit of frustrating for the people that are really in love with Unity. I think this is the right decision. I think it's the right decision for a number of reasons. One, because I think that it's going to be a really great thing for Linux as a whole to have the biggest manufacturers of the desktop Linux operating system, that being Red Hat and Canonical, both of them working together to form a single desktop environment. And I think it's going to be really good for the end users because they're going to have more freedom to go from one distro or the other. And it's all going to look the same because, hey, they're starting with GNOME. Right. It might also, you know, like there'll be more, perhaps more resources now uh, dedicated to GNOME or more interest, or we can kind of, you know, focus there and it maybe, maybe provides a little bit more, more pressure on that to not just be a Fedora, Red Hat style project, um, but, you know, have another really big name in the Linux community throwing their weight behind it. Uh, Wizard, you, uh, you had some thoughts about this, especially as it relates to the mobile industry. Yeah, uh, I actually had a Maze Pro 5, which is the, uh, was the Ubuntu phone. I used it every single day from the time I got it. Uh, the, the big thing that I, I noticed anyway was uh, Ubuntu on mobile, I don't know, the, the, as to the OS, it was, there was work to be done. I'll put it that way. There was a lot of work that needed to be done. But the one thing that was actually like the shining light and everything else was the applications that they made for it. Uh, for example, their Deco app, which was the email app for an Ubuntu phone, was excellent. I-, I would love to see that come to the desktop and Are to you? see that not die. Uh, yeah, it's it's absolutely lovely. It's I- I'm amazed It's by also it. already coming to the desktop right now. Yeah, yeah and that's great. Isn't part of the beauty of open source that if there are enough people like you that really like the Ubuntu phone, the Unity 8 on Ubuntu phone, isn't it great that there is a there is a a system in which the market can speak and say, we want this project to continue. People can fork it and it will continue outside of Canonical. Isn't that a great thing? And that's the thing. And I would and I would hope that maybe Canonical wouldn't completely throw everything out the window, as it seems like everyone is saying they should right now. I would say that maybe with. Uh, them going to GNOME and that, that they don't have to pay as much attention to their own, you know, their own DE, that maybe they can focus instead on the applications and maybe more of that, the greatness that I saw in the applications and not have to worry about, you know, <laughs> Mirror or, you know, whatever their backend stuff is with Red Hat also helping with this now. Uh, yep, that's a, I think that's a good point. Uh, Ryan, you wanted to chime in as a, from the perspective of someone who also has, you know, you guys are shipping a lot of Ubuntu desktops as well. Yeah. Oh, boy. Uh, that was a day. <laughs> I bet. Oh, uh, boy. We yeah. Were getting ready to, we were getting ready to go into a meeting with Canonical <laughs> <laughs> to discuss something else. And, and then, then that we drops. see the... Uh, Yes, and I at first it just got shared with me in the System76 Telegram chat, 
and uh, that's just full of you know kind of our fans and uh, customers. And I read it, and suddenly that whole day changed. <laughs> uh, we have a lot of users who work here who who they're Linux enthusiasts. They play with other desktops. El- uh, Cassidy here even is one of the main contributors to Elementary. Uh, so we're very familiar with <laughs> other desktops. But uh, it was so out of the blue, and it was so... Uh, I mean, we didn't know. Everybody asked, did you guys know? Uh, we had no idea this was coming. And so uh, we kind of immediately stopped everything that we were doing and started talking about what implications that had because uh, a lot of folks don't realize how much work and how much upstream work we put into making these things, making, you know, Unity 7 so work correctly what, on our machine. What's, what specifically is System76 doing to make this easier for their customers? So uh, earlier today... Uh, OMG Ubuntu posted a story um, that covered kind of uh, our thought process and uh, what we think about the future. The first thing I want to say is that the uh, is, and I think we should always do this, is that there were there were people who who poured, you know, a ton of years of their lives into, you know, six what six years into um, Unity and that converged vision, and uh, yeah, yeah. Some of those people don't have jobs today, but the but uh, jumping off of that, we uh, we are looking at um, are taking GNOME and uh, adding uh, our own touch to it. So are you? Ta- um, are, so if I understand, at- are you saying that you're going to take what Canonical ships and what GNOME is shipping as stock, and then System seventy six is going to modify that and add to that before they ship it to their customers? That's correct. Uh, we are not going to be forking anything. We're not going to be um, doing anything that that represents, um, uh, I guess, bloat. Uh, we're just going to be adding nice little touches using um, extensions that ship with the desktop in. So, he, so here, here's a question for you. It, I read an article that was that kind of when 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 Mark Shuttleworth with that was asked. He said they asked him. They said, you know. Or how do you feel about this? What are you going to do? Are you going to modify Noman? And his answer was, you know, we need to respect the desktop development team and we need to respect the work that Gnome is doing. And so if Gnome believes that this is the best way to ship a desktop, well, then at Canonical, we're just going to back them and we are going to accept that that is their design philosophy. We will, well, obviously we'll offer input, but at the end of the day, we are going to deliver the desktop the way that Gnome intends the desktop to be delivered. Are you saying that that's not System 76's view that you guys that that's you're going to do something different well first i want to say that we have been in conversations with the gnome community and with you know uh some of the main contributors over there since the announcement or at -hmm. least some of them some of the uh people on the board of directors and and so on so uh i don't think what we're doing will represent a getting away from stock uh gnome i mean it's mm-hmm. just uh, a layer of visual, um, our own design. Sorry, I mean that's what extensions and theming is for. Is is for sure. we think we want to offer 
a system 76 experience from the time you buy the machine being on the website and seeing kind of our design touches and and what we think of how, how things should look and feel. And we want the people to have that same experience when they get their box. And we think that that cohesive experience is great. Absolutely. And having been to System 76, I have seen you guys do this in person, you know, where you make these tweaks. And so I can definitely appreciate that. But at the same time, having been a GNOME user and seen how these extensions, and I mean, it's being pointed out to me right in the chat that, you know, a lot of these extensions, they really aren't, they're really not, it's, it's, it, it, we have to separate an extension from actually being part of GNOME. It seems like it would be, it would, it would provide a better experience if you could get those changes enacted right at gnome if you're working with the gnome people why can't uh, why can't those changes be pushed to gnome as a whole rather than you know system 76 specific systems with no these ha- oh oh really yeah, yeah you can look at all the examples of like the most sim- <clears throat> one of the most basic things that people want is top icons and people ask gnome to in- make, include that extension like five years ago and gnome's like no because we don't want it that's that's not, our, that's not okay. a part of our design vision and so and so that so, that's what that's what brings me to this interesting question is if gnome has has made a line in the sand and they're like this is not what we want to deliver this isn't the design vision that we have and canonical's willing to accept that doesn't it seem a little um doesn't it seem a little strange that system 76 is going to say no we're we really believe that x is what customers want and so we're going to deliver x so all of our all of our work will be open source and we're not going to do anything that represents uh that that goes against the i the goals that gnome is striving for but top icons is an excellent um example of an extension that see, that people have an expectation of um especially our users who who uh, might be moving from unity and doing a direct upgrade to <laughs> a gnome desktop uh you know this is going to be a big transition for a lot of them of course we're going to have documentation on how to turn these things off um in gnome tweak it's fairly easy and if we can get this accepted up, upstream which based on my conversations this week uh doesn't seem out of the question we're going to collaborate with gnome on that and uh hopefully we don't have to ship anything that is that isn't part of the gnome experience uh the the thing is is that uh in my conversations it seems like the gnome community is taking a look at itself and i don't want to speak for them but uh it seemed like they were really doing some soul searching on on what hills they're willing to die on you know in order to uh accommodate the new users who are and the new contributors who are coming to the project and uh i take them at their word on that i think that they're open to some of these conversations that they've maybe had before because we're here and we're willing to contribute. And we already are talking about how we can contribute to Wayland and how we can contribute to big projects that they're working on. And so uh, I think that I, I don't know what that looks like, but I, but I know some of the things that we've already identified that seem like no brainers that we would really like to, to offer our customers. We, we sat around for a long time and offered um, Unity 7, which was in maintenance mode. And things that our customers asked for, things that we got feedback from for every day, we waited on someone else to implement. And uh, I'm not sure that we're going to continue doing that when our customers 
provide that type of feedback and they clearly have demands and desires. It was actually really funny because yeah, I, th- I think it should be, the, I think it should. The, I was just going to say the feedback that they got on hacker news that canonical got on hacker news. Most of that feedback we'd already um, documented from our own customers, you know? And so we, we were starting to collaborate on unity seven, you know, doing high DPI support, um, doing scaling between monitors, which should be available for our customers here soon and upstream. So I think that, uh, I think what we're trying to do is create the perfect experience or at least as close as we can get to it. And if we have to, um, uh, enable some extensions to do that, we're going to do that. I think Rikai, uh, asked a really good question here in the IRC room, uh, was there any consideration of moving to a different Ubuntu official flavor? Seems like this would be a good time to consider that, considering this is kind of a time of forced change anyway. <laughs> uh, everything was on the table when okay, we got yeah. the uh, when we read the announcement. <laughs> yeah, the, that's fair. I just want to I just want to say it just so it's said at least once. Um, you know the the GNOME team has been doing an excellent job of delivering on a Class A desktop for a long time, um, and so as you know, if a distribution and a computer manufacturer wants to take advantage of all the all the hard work and you know and, and contribute back um, to all the hard work that that the GNOME team has done, I, I think it I think it needs to be at least said once that we need to keep in mind that this is a team that has a direction that they are they are going and, and input is always welcome. Ultimately, though, I think it's important that. You know, the, you know, your comment about or um, something that you said, you know, kind of rubbed me and you said something along the lines of like, now they might be more open because of all these new users that are coming there. Well, those new users and that new user base and all of those projects that, you know, that are, that are you know, now coming over to GNOME because of, uh, you know, Canonical's decisions. I think they need to come into it with the understanding that, you know, they are already on this train. This train is already moving. If you'd like to come along for the ride, offer some input, help us steer the train, fine. But we're not going to derail the train, take it a totally different direction just because there's more of you on board, right? Yeah, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying I'm I'm repeating what they have told me, some members of the community, that they recognize that there's a lot of contributors. I'm not I don't even want to talk about sure. users actually. There's a lot of contributors who are coming in who are willing to send code upstream and willing to participate, including our own engineers here who have been contributing a lot to Unity as of late. And uh, and we're ready to provide code to solve some of the problems that they want to solve. Uh, sure. And they seem very, very open to to working with us to solve what we want to solve. For instance, sure. menus in GNOME, uh, in GNOME, especially in applications, is kind of, can be a mess. There can be like, you know, three different menus in some applications in order to get to different stuff. This is one of the things that we're talking about addressing. And if we can't address it through GNOME, through GNOME proper, then uh, we'll likely still address it. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I think that uh, one of the first things that struck me about using GNOME was finding this menu inside of like the dock thing. So, you know, that was interesting. Uh, MonkeyCom, uh, you wanted to chime in here. Yeah, we... My company switched over to System76 systems probably two years ago, and we're running servals and meerkats, and and we're just running the stock System76 systems because when my guys have problems, they call System76, and if they want to modify that, GNOME, you know, and so that, so that, you know, but if they want to modify GNOME so that it makes a better presentation 
to my users. And so I'm not having to go over and help them tweak their desktops. I'm all on board because that's the whole reason we are using them. And that's, that's a great point. However, I have to ask the question, if the entire Linux community, you know, entire Linux community, but the, the major players in Linux being Red Hat, you know, and SUS has actually done a lot of contrib- contribution to GNOME as well. So SUS and Red Hat and Canonical, now they're all on GNOME and, and Mark Shuttleworth, the guy with the vision of Unity is willing to accept GNOME to ship as is. And what I'm hearing is, and I, I can't quite get over this, is System76 is now going to kind of go out on their own and say, well, we'll make these extensions and kind of modify and stuff is. Am, am I, I, I like to be devil's advocate in this point. Then, um, if you look at it, System76 already went out on their own with Unity and made modifications and things like that. So it's not like they're changing their MO. But mostly, GNOME is designed specifically to allow extensions. Like it, it is intended to be modified via extensions. So even if you do install an extension or you create your own custom extension to modify it in some way, you, are you really going against GNOME's, you know, intent? Well, I think the, if no wanted to, if no wanted to, if no wanted to include, you know, like the like the menu system, they wanted to rework that. They wanted to include the minimize and and maximize stuff. I feel like that's something that was pretty simple that the GNOME key, team could have done long before, you know, Ubuntu switched over. System seventy six offered, you know, their engineers and stuff like that. So I, I guess I'm I'm just having a little hard time understanding how we are respecting the direction that GNOME wants to go and what the decision is going to be if the direction GNOME wants to go is a different decision than what System. 76 feels is best for their customers. It's because created the extension I, system. In I would time. like to add two things here. One, you know, I'm basing this off of conversations with the GNOME guys. They love the idea of making use of the extensions. Sorry, the, the GNOME guys I've talked to don't seem to mind the idea of the use of their extensions that they put into the desktop okay. <laughs> environment in order to make the changes that we want to make. In, in fact, it seems like that's what they intended it for was for the last bit, you know, if it's an OEM or someone who wants to put in their own stuff to, to do that. The other thing is we're, we're so I, I want everybody to take this with a grain of salt. We are engineers to Guadec in Manchester this year. That You know, that's a big GNOME conference. And before we implement anything, we're going to be having conversations about. And I'm fairly optimistic based on my conversations. Of course, we made this decision before before we had all the conversations we've had now, you know, that, that, uh, there's a lot that we can work out without having to ship extensions. Um, but I just, but the thing I'm trying to, to iterate here is that, uh, we are interested in implementing our customers feedback and we were waiting for a very long time, and this is one of the downsides of, of canonical strategy before this change. We were waiting for a long time because Unity 8 was coming, and we thought, well, we could pour all this time and money and resources into Unity 7 only to have it trashed, you know. And now we're, we realize, well, you know, there are things that our customers want that, that ultimately we're <laughs> going to have to either taken to our own hands, you know, or not see them at all, uh, potentially. And, uh, and just like I'm sure you listened to customer feedback and implemented it, you know, at your role, um, so long as we do it in the right way, I feel like it'll be a net positive for everyone. And of course, all this stuff will be made open and, and, uh, and uh, we'll provide it in a package that people can easily install 
and uh, have all of our extensions there. And we're just interested to really get involved into into hacking around with it with gnome mm-hmm. you know our new mm-hmm. toy and see what we can right. do but mm-hmm. all around we're really excited about this no well, community has been fantastic well ryan we really appreciate you stopped by and linux unplugged and thanks a lot for all you guys are doing at system 76 we wish you the best i uh i, I still have my <laughs> still have my reservations about how all this is going to play out but uh, i guess we'll see wes what are your thoughts you know i i think that's spot on um i i'm hopeful that it's going to be a good move for Linux desktop users overall, um, you know, there was Mark Shuttleworth had some comments about what he thought about the hate on Mirror and and Unity in general. Uh, I I do agree with you. As someone who's used it at a, at a work desktop, like I didn't, I did obviously I could change my desktop if I need to. I didn't go that far. It worked. It worked for me. It wasn't one I chose on my home systems, but it was you know it was very functional. It had a lot of nice features that maybe other things didn't. But I'm very hopeful that we can take the energy that was going there, redirect it, and build a better foundation that we can all benefit from. But we'll see. I, I, I think we're going to have to see. That seems like a perfect time to end this week's program. I think it's been a great discussion and something we're going to have to consider. So that wraps it up this week. Episode 192 of your Linux Unplugged program. If you'd like to see more, head on over to jupiterbroadcasting.com. There you can find our reruns, other show reruns. Hey, there's a new show called Ask Noah. You should most certainly check out if you've enjoyed Noah's commentary here today, or if you didn't, because you're just going to get more of that wonderful guy. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at at Wes Payne. Noah, where are you? At Colonel Linux, at Ask Noah Show, AskNoahShow.com for the Ask Noah dashboard. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. The show wouldn't be the same without all of our Wonder Mumble contributors. You can go to JupiterBroadcasting.com if you want to find out more about how to get on our Mumble Room, or you can join us on our IRC. We love having live contributors. It's what makes this show the virtual lug. And please stay tuned. Join us next week. everybody let's go over to jbittitles.com and pick our show title so i got a bone to pick with something colonel said all right Uh-oh. that's the perfect opportunity for our post-show discussion okay so noah you'd you'd mentioned something about uh developers intentions and whatnot and the way that distribu- uh, distributions you know package like the desktop environments but I always kind of see it as the distro's job to kind of, you know, smooth out those rough edges. And Ubuntu's always done a really good job of that. Like in the past, uh, mm-hmm. even when they shipped uh, uh, GNOME 2, they really put a lot of polish on that. You know, I agree. Adding that top menu and stuff I, like that. I, I agree. And I think it's one thing for a, a large software company that that ships hundreds of millions of copies of a software that has 700 employees, offices, and multiple locations to make that kind of a change. 
and a computer company in Denver, Colorado, that's, you know, in a single place. This is not a hit on System 76. We have done, I have done, I have given more praise to System 76. I have, I spent, they had the most airtime of any segment we did at scale because I was so in love with the product that, that they're doing. So this is not a hit on System 76, but the con, the, the market confines of the, rea- the reality that we're living in is that Canonical, a company many, many times the size of System 76, is saying that we think it's a better opportunity to ship GNOME the way the GNOME team wants to deliver it. And System 76 is saying, no, we don't quite agree with that. We think that we need to make these changes here, there, and everywhere, and we'll make these kind of tweaks. And if we can't get it done through actual GNOME, then we'll just hack on an extension. And I just, that whole thing starts Whoa. to, uh, that starts to make me feel, that starts to make me feel like we are going down a path that, that I don't really, I'm not real comfortable going down. If, I mean, it was, for, if it was a hack on of changing some part of the core or something like that, then I would agree with your point. But the extension system is built by GNOME for this purpose. And, and yeah, yeah I just, the other part that I got like from him describing what he was talking about as well is it sounded like this was more minor tweaks with the extensions and theming, which a lot of OEM manufacturers for computers, you know. Not only do they, you know, do that kind of thing, I've seen stuff on computers when you get them new that's, you know, you don't want that stuff on your computer. And I I have more confidence in System76 making small changes than I'd say HP shipping me a brand new computer. I agree with that. But when you co- when it comes to redoing the menu system, when it comes to modifying the, you know, the taskbar and stuff like that, it just, it seems like those are the kind of things that, in my personal experience, and again, I'm not speaking for everyone, my personal experience, those kind of things done with extensions seem to leave little holes in the polish, you know, and the, again, not to, not to, well, you know, beat a broken, a dead horse. extensions don't have people backing it. They don't have a company backing to make sure that they are polished. And I'm wondering, does System76 have the, you know, do, do they have the infrastructure? Do they have the capital? Do they have the, you know, what's necessary you know to bring that forward i i don't know the answer to that maybe they do um well, maybe i'm selling them short i don't know so so let's actually go in down this route a bit because like okay let's say that you're right and it leaves spot holes holes in the polish right uh then mm-hmm. wouldn't wouldn't they then go and get some complaints and then maybe they'd fix it like i think that this is really not a problem i think we're getting hung up on only one stage of the pipeline because we're not looking forward enough. Like if there's problems, then people are going to notice it and they're going to complain to them I, and they'll fix I'm, it. I'm just look. I'm just looking bigger picture. Canonical ships Ubuntu. Everything that has everyone that is that everyone that's using Ubuntu perfectly happy with GNOME, including Mark Shuttleworth himself, and then not quite good enough for a single computer company out of Denver. I just I, I'm having a hard time squaring it in my head. Well, well I, I don't think, think anyone leaves still, GNOME stock. I don't think anyone installs no. GNOME. According to touch according anything. according to Mark Shuttleworth, OMG Ubuntu ran a piece. They did an interview with him, and he in his words, we believe that the GNOME team is, is going to take direction. We're going to offer some input, but ultimately, we are going to let them take the design decision. They will ship GNOME, and we will will just implement it. He made they they specifically asked him if he is going to you know be tweaking this stuff, and according to him, they're not. They're just going to take GNOME. Yeah, but I think he's out of the yeah. desktop. I think he's out of the desktop business after Unity. I mean, that's that's someone who's gone down six years of trying to do something and realized. This is too much of a nut to crack. We're going to go back to GNOME. I mean, that's really what that is. That's not him saying that GNOME doesn't stand for, doesn't need improvement. He's just saying, we'll let them worry about the desktop. We're going to worry about the 
the Ubuntu I, I think this is, product. I think this is a good a way great, to what segue. What a great design idea. What a great yeah. design idea. Let the GNOME team deal with the desktop. Let us deal with the backend Ubuntu. And I agree with that design philosophy. And that makes it all the more difficult for me to say that this computer company is going to say, well, that's it's good enough for all those people, not quite good enough for our customers. I, that is what I have a hard time getting my head wrapped around. We, and mostly because I spent the last week getting so excited that all of these companies are rallying around a single desktop environment. And so that's going to become consistent between Red Hat, Fedora, Ubuntu, SUS, all of these companies, everything is going to be consistent. And now I feel like right at the beginning, before we even have the first version out, we already have one of the biggest supporters of Ubuntu, one of the biggest shippers of Ubuntu laptops saying, hey, we're going to go a slightly different way. Now, not much, we're just make some little tweaks, but we're going to go a slightly different way. That's what kind of gets me. I think that chimes right in with what Rikai was asking. Um, you know, was this, uh, Enrico was saying he didn't really get an answer to his question, but like, you know, did System76 really decide, have other, should other companies decide that maybe KDE or Mate, um, you know, you could How about also. Elementary OS. Yeah, the in, exactly. They have in one of the elementary OS designers in, you know, at their company. That seems like a, a direction that could be a good way to go, particularly if they are concerned that the, the GNOME isn't going to adequately fix, fit their customers. Right. Seems like you want something upstream in. that, Why? like, they're going to be receptive. You know, can you work, especially if you're going to be willing to apply extra effort, submit patches, you want an upstream mm-hmm. that's going to be taking okay. them or iterate on them. So- Going to elementary would be like your argument as having a big, like a whole unified approach would be the exact opposite. Like, why would you be okay with them choosing elementary versus adding some? I'm not. I think if if we're up to me, I would ship. I would ship stock Ubuntu. But but what I'm saying is, if you're going to start making UI tweaks, if you don't feel like that's up to the task, and you, and like Rikai correctly points out, they're at a point of force change anyway. I think if it were up to System76, they'd continue shipping Unity because they've been selling Unity for seven years. They've been telling their customers to expect Unity for seven years. Probably before this announcement was made, they were telling customers one of the great things about it, because I know, because I've been telling my customers this, one of the great things about Ubuntu is you won't have to worry about the desktop changing huh. because they don't make those big changes, right? So and then all of a sudden, boom. Are you bothered by Intergos, uh, Fedora, and Sousa all having different things from the stock GNOME? Kind of. None of them ship stock GNOME. Well, Fedora is pretty darn close. I mean, there really is not. It's not. They're the ones who even make it, and they don't ship the stock. Mm, Don't forget to vote, everyone. Go vote, go vote. What's modified in Fedora? They don't even modify modify the color template of the the theme stuff. That ships stock. That's because they they design it. Yeah, they designed that part, but they they also add extensions. There are official GNOME extensions, such as the application menu. That you, if you don't like the the, the default menu and the overview, the GNOME provides an extension for changing. Fair enough. Like, well, uh, this I have thing that I have a good view. Um, let's imagine that system system seventy six does some changes, and let's imagine they would present some kind of pop up menu, and they would say, "Okay, you can do the change with Ubuntu. You can switch to GNOME three, or you can have some patch set, some extension set that we provide for you, and that will give some kind of legacy Unity experience for you. Would that be a solution for you? Maybe." Maybe. For me, that'd be I just that'd be the the whole thing is treating gnome like it is some golden goose that must that is uh, that obviously is making all the right design decisions. And no, I, it's not. 
it's well, not that's that. the way you're describing well it. it's so here's 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 an issue i have and it's it's something and i'll admit it's kind of a raw spot for me but i see this happen time and time again what happens is something really cool starts off and at first it's a bunch of geeks who love it and then what happens is it kind of takes off and then they put a marketing term on it and then it gets sold to commercial ventures and then everyone jumps on board and then they take it they take this thing that all of these all of these core geeks really liked and then they take it in a direction that it was never meant to go in to begin with and i'm having a hard time coming up with something off the top of my head home automation home automation is a great example right it started out as i had closed contacts i had relays i owned all the technology i could it fit all in my house i could see it all i could use it all everything was open there was no restrictions there was no proprietary stuff and then it got eaten up by these companies who who marketize it you know and productize it and now you buy everything from amazon you link it to your amazon account with an api key and amazon controls everything and then now everyone says oh i, I like home automation well they don't like the home automation they like paying for amazon services and i that's what i'm kind of afraid of happening to gnome the gnome team has been consistently developed delivering a better and better and better desktop every time it comes out. Is it perfect? No. Do I like it for everything? Absolutely not. Do I have problems with it? Of course. But they are going a a particular direction and the people that are using GNOME are very happy with the direction they're going. And what concerns me is as we all of a sudden load up the millions of people that are on Ubuntu and now they're coming back into the GNOME projects, as we load up these, you know, software hardware manufacturers that are shipping to their end clients and they have to, they have to meet a profit line and they have to deliver to their customers and their customers' expectations. My concern is, does the direction of GNOME change or is there going to be a lot of undue pressure for the direction of GNOME change from all these people that are going to GNOME because the desktop they were on, frankly, wasn't good enough for the market? 